So, happy Father's Day. I was given this shirt by my kids this morning. And uh, I kind of like Big Papa. I, I, <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe you can all call me Big Papa. Would that be right? Like, that could be my title. Um, it's good. It's good. Big Papa. Big Papa. <laughs> hmm. We'll think about that. Yeah. I like it. I like, I like it when you call me Big Papa. <laughs> Throw your hands in the air like you're a true player. <laughs> I see one lady who has had both my babies. Babies. Some of you have no clue what that is. <laughs> All right, drop me a beat now. <laughs> All right, can we now become spiritual. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Um, Acts chapter 2, I mean. What we're we're going to be seeing in Acts here is, and let me me just draw this. It's kind of, I'll start start off with this image. What we're going to be seeing in Acts is a, um, where should I go with this? Uh, How about over here? The, it's it's this monumental moment in in history when, um, I just wrote in my hat, I think, when when God's spirit comes to dwell with humanity forever. I mean, I want to wrap our minds around this just as we start off. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is this, um, uh, the the Greeks think of the Trinity as this eternal dance, this eternal dance of the Godhead. Like there's just this beautiful song that's been playing in all of eternity, and there's this dance of the Godhead that has been happening in all of eternity. And uh, with the fall, we have fallen out of that dance. We've fallen away from that song, and we're no longer hearing that song, and we no longer know the moves to the dance, and we're dancing to our own drum. And what's happening at Pentecost here, what's happening in Acts 2, is that God is inviting us back into the dance of the Godhead. We are, we are being filled with God's very life, the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us and bring us back into this song, into this dance, into this work. It's this phenomenal thing that we can't just like read over and, and not allow the truth of it to change our lives. So um, I'm not even going to try to do it justice today. I'm just going to read some verses and, and we can talk about it. But I, I do pray that I mean, we're, we're studying how the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work, not us. And I, my, that's truly my prayer this morning. I mean, if, if the Holy Spirit moves this morning, um, something amazing, I think, could happen in your life. Um, so that is my prayer. But uh, let's, let's just pray, and then we'll dive into it. God, uh, we do... Uh, humbly come before you and recognize that we are reading uh, your very word to us and we thank you for, for this uh, 
moment in time uh, on the day of Pentecost when your Holy Spirit crashed into the lives of these, these humans. You immersed the church in your very life. And we are part of that immersion and we thank you for that. And God, deeply remind us of that truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it, is, it is a miracle, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was, I was talking with an atheist uh, a couple months ago who's a good friend of mine. And uh, what, what this atheist said was that if, if they saw uh, a miracle happen, if they saw something supernatural take place before their eyes, then they would believe. So I can't believe because I'm not seeing miracles, I'm not seeing supernatural stuff happen. But if I did, if, if something that was just absolutely impossible took place, um, then I would believe. And I, I've, I've heard Christians say things like this. Have you guys, maybe you've even thought this before, like your faith would be deepened if you really saw something supernatural take place. If you saw just, I don't somebody raised back from the dead or just something absolutely unexplainable, unexplainable as far as, uh, as, far as modern science goes. And um, what we're about to see here is, is just that. It's this unexplainable, massive explosion of God's spirit. So let's dive into it. Read verse 1 with me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And so we left off last week with, with uh, the, the church in prayer. They had received the Great Commission from Christ, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize people, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have one purpose for their life, no matter where they go, no matter what job they take, no matter who their neighbors are. They have one purpose for their life, and that is to make disciples and bring glory to God in all of the world. And, um, and then we talked about last week how just after they've, been, they've received this like really big commission that Jesus then says, but wait, you're not, you're not ready yet. You don't have what it takes yet. You don't, you don't have the power that you need. You can't change lives on your own. You can't make disciples on your own. And so wait right here until the Holy Spirit comes to you. And so they've been waiting. And now what we're seeing, we're picking up when the, on, the, on the day of Pentecost, the, which is symbolic in and of itself, the, the preparation for this, the Feast of Pentecost is over and the, the day is upon them, the waiting is over, and the Holy Spirit is about to explode in their midst. Um, a couple words that I want to just clarify here uh, that, that we're going to be seeing through this and through the Acts and the New Testament, baptized, bap baptizing the Holy Spirit and, and the word filled by the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is, um, is this right here. It's this immersion, not, not water baptism, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's this immersion in the very life of God, the very Spirit of God, to where their, their, their lives are no longer their lives. Their hearts are no longer their hearts. Their thoughts are no longer theirs. But God has completely come in and He's transformed them and He's immersed them in His very own life. So baptism of the Holy Spirit, that occurs one time in your life upon conversion. When you recognize your eyes are open to your, to, to your sin, your, your eyes are open to the cross and the good news of Christ, and you accept Christ as your Savior, and you put your faith into Christ. In that moment, 
you are immersed in the life of God and the Holy Spirit comes and does a regenerating work in your life and you're made new. You're a new, this is the word new creation. That's where it, we are baptized into the Spirit and we are made new. And then the filling of the Spirit is something that happens over and over. Uh, it's, it's, it's allowing God's Spirit now to operate through you, to fill you, to, to do some things through you that you could never do in and of yourself as you allow it. And there are things, and we're going to get into this, there's things that can stifle that. Sin, namely, that can, that can stifle the Spirit from operating through you. And what we're going to see here is it's, it's the first time and, and the only time that the, that the entire church has been baptized by the Holy Spirit, has been immersed in the life of Christ, in the life of God. And all subsequent baptisms of, uh, baptisms of the Holy Spirit, anybody hereafter who comes to Christ and who is regenerated and made a new creation is baptized into this original baptism right here. So just keep that in mind as, as we study this. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So if you're from the Midwest, you might think of tornadoes. Woo, tornadoes. Or if you're from the South, you might think of hurricanes. Have you ever seen a hurricane or a tornado? You, heard, you, can, you can imagine the sound, the power, that violent, uh, powerful, filling sound of a tornado or, or a hurricane. You've experienced it. It might have frightened you. Imagine it indoors. You're sitting in a room, in a big room, because there's about 120 people or so in the church at this point. You're sitting in a big room, and all of a sudden, the sound of a violent wind, a tornado or a hurricane, completely fills the room. Wind. It's God's spirit throughout the scriptures. We see wind and, and, uh, uh, and breath referred to as the spirit of God. Or vice versa. I said that backwards. The spirit of God referred to as wind or breath. And so there is this dramatic sound of a violent wind as God's breath, as his spirit is coming, as his pneuma is coming around them and about to baptize them about to completely immerse them. And verse 3, they see then tongues, what, what seems to be tongues of fire. And the word tongue there, uh, it's and, and anything in the Jewish imagination. Jewish people used very concrete words to describe something. So anything that was long and slender w was considered to be a tongue, the tongue of a river, etc. And they see then the, the, this long and slender tongue of fire, which, which comes and rests on each of them. Now fire, let's think of, we, we've got wind here, we've, we've got fire. Can we think of images of fire throughout the scriptures? Anyone? Pillar of fire in the wilderness. And it was re a representative of what? Spirit of God. God's presence. What else? Are you going to say something, Brandon? The burning bush. Yes. The burning bush. Exodus. Moses standing there, takes his shoes off, just he hears the voice of God coming from a bush that's burning. Daniel? Daniel? Uh, that's right, that's right. They're, they're, uh, the fire's not burning them up. It's phenomenal. Elijah and the altar of the 
Uh, yeah, he was taken up in a fiery, oh, oh, Elijah, and, I'm sorry. Uh, I was thinking of two different, uh, calling down fire, yeah. It's huge. Anything else? Exodus uh, chapter 19, God descends on Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, smoke, and fire. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.24, God is referred to as what? A consuming fire. All-consuming, ravaging, powerful, tremendous, devouring, devouring element of fire. I mean, think about this image of fire that is used to refer to God. Um, and, and what they're seeing now is this fire come down, this presence of God, and it separates. And they're being, this, this right here, they're being consumed up in this, in this beautiful, eternal dance of the Trinity. Scott McKnight puts it like this. I want to read this. Pentecost, he says, referring to this right here. The day on which we are indwelt by the Spirit sweeps us up into the dance of the Trinity. We are summoned to the dance floor, and the music is grace and love and holiness and peace. The music is supplied by God, and His people are invited to sing and dance along. Pentecost, my friends, is an invitation to a dance, and it gives us the energy and power to pull it off. So here they are, humans uh, being invited by God into this all-consuming, powerful, uh, seemingly violent thing, this element, this spirit. Now, in verse 4 it says, it, it begins, or verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues that separated and came to rest on each of them. As, as they first see this, it, it, it begins as this one single mass of, of fire. And then it separates and individually rests on each one of the, the, the people in the room. Multiple people being baptized, immersed by how many spirits? One spirit. Wrap your mind around that piece. Multiple people, many of us, being immersed in one spirit. Are you tracking with me? Shall I have you repeat after me? I never do that. I want to start doing it more. <laughs> Slap somebody and say, multiple people. <laughs> <laughs> Immersed in one spirit. They say 10 o'clock is the most segregated hour of the week. And I've always wanted to be a church, I've always wanted to be part of a church, I could say, which bucks that norm. I mean, think about it. If, if there are what we're seeing here is this, this spirit, this one spirit, and then individual, individually it splits and it rests on all these people. They're now sharing one spirit. Shouldn't the church, if there is any place in society, shouldn't the church be the place where all kinds of people can come together in love? I'm convinced that in Baltimore, one of the problems that we have in this city and the reasons that, that there is still segregation in Baltimore is because the churches haven't got this. The churches are still segregated. We, 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 we are not, uh, as a whole, as a, as a church, we're not exhibiting this kind of unity. One spirit. Multiple people. Multiple gifts. Unique abilities. 
but one spirit. But what I, what I love about the garden, what I'm thankful for, is that we're, we're experiencing that here. And from what I'm hearing from you guys is that like on a regular basis, we're experiencing what it means to be in community with people who are very different from us. People who you would never otherwise hang out with. And, and you're now brothers and sisters sharing the same spirit with them. Which confirms in my mind the belief that I have had for quite some time that church is not a place where we come to find friends, find people that are like us. But church is a place where we learn to love those we would never otherwise hang out with. I, went, I visited a church a couple years ago where everybody looked the same. Like everybody, all the, all the men had beards and were wearing Birkenstocks. Birkenstocks? Is that the right? I don't wear them. Paul, are those Birkenstocks? No. <laughs> Looking at all your feet now. The women were all like a little granola. They were all the same, you know? Uh, they were all like similar granola. You familiar with the term granola? Like they're kind of hikers. Um, they don't wear makeup. Um, everybody looked the same. That's what I'm getting at. And, uh, and it, you know, it's kind of, it's probably an attractive thing at first, I think, to just be around people, everybody that is like you. And, and I really believe that most of the time when we do quote-unquote church shopping, what we're doing is we're trying to find a church that have a, a lot of people that look like me, that talk like me, that act like me, that think like me. And we're not doing this. We're, we're not saying we are one spirit. Multiple people, one spirit. So the fire appears as one and then it divides and then what happens next here in the, in the text testifies to this truth. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, which is languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Enabled them. Now, to understand what languages there or tongues, what that means, we've got to go on. Verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each, uh, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in, in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. These countries are all countries which were known to have Jewish converts in them. And so being the Feast of the Pentecost, uh, it would representatives from each of these countries and others would, would come and pour into the city, into Jerusalem at this time. Which, by the way, just a little side note, doesn't this say something about the timing of God? Like, if you think about these early believers and Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and, and he's going to give you the power that you need. They, don't you think that they would have, if it was in their own timing, they would have had it sooner than this? Like, they would have had it right away. Let's not wait. 
Um, we've, got a big, we've got a big job ahead of us. We've got a lot of work to do. Just give it to us now and let's get working. Let's get started. But that wasn't God's timing. And so God, in, within God's timing, he waited until the world was coming to them. And they're now in Jerusalem and up to or, up to, or over 200,000 extra people would be in Jerusalem at this time. From all of these different countries and others. And, and they hear this and it's not this crazy, it, it, it's not just a massive noise that's uh, sort of inutterable or uh, uh, incomprehensible sounds, but these are actual languages now that these people are hearing. And Luke uses the word amazed twice to describe what's going on here. Why? It's pretty amazing. That's the easiest. Come on now. Say it's pretty amazing. Look at verse 7 though. Utterly amazed they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, Albert Barnes says this about Galileans. They were generally known as Number one, ignorant, rude, or uncivilized people. Number two, their dialect was proverbial, proverbial, proverbially, 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 <laughs> my dialect is proverbial, proverbial, <laughs> I, I could spell it, let me spell it for you, proverbially, got it, barbarous, and corrupt. Galilean, right here. <laughs> that was just a, I, I, that was just an example. That was an illustration of how a Galilean might talk. All right. Um, Galileans were not seen as educated people. They were they were seen as un, uneducated. They spoke one language, Aramaic, possibly Greek. They were not uh, uh, conversant with people from other cultures, other dialects, other languages. Uh, they were unacquainted with other nations. Yet here, they're speaking to people who are Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, Romans, Cretans, and Arabs. They're speaking to people. These, these, these one language people group the Galileans who are uneducated, who are unfamiliar with other people groups, are speaking in at least 15 different languages. Maybe 50, 50 languages and dialects. Some theologians say with this makeup of uh, countries, it would have even been more than that. Multiple languages. One message, the wonders of God. Now, picture this. The Spirit has come has separated, has split, and has baptized these people and, and now has filled them with the power of God and they're speaking as the Spirit gives them utterance. They don't know, what, they, they don't know these languages. They're, they're speaking the wonders of God and everybody is hearing them in their own language. That's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, let's try to just wrap our minds around what's going on here. The power of God is best exhibited in your weakness. Think about that. God is not using people who are educated. He's not using people who are well recognized in society. Because the power of God is, is, is best exhibited in your 
weaknesses. And the people are perplexed and bewildered and amazed. They're not educated. You might, you might feel uneducated. You might feel that you don't have what it takes. But the Spirit moves and nothing is impossible. You're not from around here. I was, I was told by some before coming into Baltimore that I'm going to the wrong place. I'm from suburban white Akron, Ohio and felt a call to the inner city of Baltimore and was told by plenty that I'm going to the wrong place. But when the spirit moves, nothing is impossible. My, my, my dream for the garden, for our church, as, as we think about the future and as we grow, my dream is this, is that what happens in and through us will not be easily explainable by us or by people that are watching. I mean, the, the world is not impressed by fancy programs, by large churches, by amazing things, if it's all explainable. I mean, do you, do you guys know that we have more mega churches today than ever before? And our, the, the, the rate of unchurched people in America is drastically increasing? with more megachurches than ever. If you would have said 10 years ago that if we planted 10 megachurches every year, I mean, what a dream that would be. Over the next 10 years, we're going to plant 10 churches with 5,000 or more people in them across America. What a move of God that'll be. And that's happened over the past 10 years. And now we have more unchurched people than we did 10 years ago. And I'm not, I'm, that's not, I'm not saying that there are, there are a lot of great megachurches out there not an indictment against large churches. And I pray that one day we will be a large church, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. There's, how many unchurched people are there in Baltimore? I was just talking with Erica about this. If there's maybe, let's say there's 300,000 unchurched people in Baltimore, we should be a church of 300,000, right? I mean, <laughs> let's think about it. But not for our glory. Listen. When you, when you look across the states, we can point out more mega ministries than ever before, fancier things, uh, just glorious stuff. Yet people are not being drawn to the church. Is, is it possible that it's because we're operating in our own power? Is it possible that, that we can have a church of 10,000 people and explain every step of how we got there, write a book about it, and pass it on to someone else? Is it possible that that's not impressive to the, to, the, to the outside world. I, I, I believe this, the power of, of a revival, when we think about the word revival, the, the outpouring of the Spirit, God's Spirit just pouring out among us, through us, revival happening, uh, um, people being changed, people who, who were angry, all of a sudden exhibiting the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, exhibiting joy and peace and, and patience and, and uh, people who are, who are addicts are set free. Just revival. You know, the, the power of God being poured out. I, I believe that, that one of the beautiful effects of, of, uh, of a revival is that the outside world, is that people look at that and say, there must be a God. 
Jesus Christ must be Lord because that's unexplainable. I've seen people come to Christ because they have seen a friend who's unexplainably just completely transformed and it makes no sense to them and they're drawn to Christ because of it. Now, look at verse, verse 12 and 13. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And so there are thousands of people. Now, keep in mind that in just a few, uh, a few verses, we're going to go from 120 people in the church to 3,000. All right, so think about this impact. Think about the people that are there. there. There's thousands of people that have been drawn and are hearing the gospel preached, the wonders of God preached in their own language. And many of them now, many of them are being... They're amazed and perplexed and they're saying, what does this mean? Like something is happening here that we can't explain. We've, we've got to take note. And that is often the result, the result of, of a revival. However, look at verse 13 as well. Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. Some said they had too much wine. They're drunk. The, the impossible is taking place. The supernatural, miraculous event is taking place. And there will be some people who write it off. Explain it away. Because to believe requires change. To believe requires sacrifice. And some people are not willing to sacrifice. Some people are not willing to set themselves aside. Some people are not willing to say, I am no longer the Lord of my life and there is another and better Lord. Some people can't say that. And so the, the, the miraculous can happen, the supernatural can happen, and they will mock it. They will explain it away. There will be people uh, in, in your life who say, and, and maybe you're one of those people that say, you know, I will believe. I will believe if, if I see something supernatural happen. If I see something that is as, as absolutely unexplainable, I will believe. And that can happen before their eyes, can happen before your eyes, and you write it off. You mock it. It can't be. can't be. It's impossible. Because to believe requires just way too much. Now, and it, here, here's also the problem, and, and I want to camp on this. Um, because of this, in, in our own lives, Uh, let me put it into an example. You're sharing your faith with your friend. And right at the moment you're being vulnerable and you're, you're saying something that's like risky, uh, your friend just goes off on a 10-minute rant about how, how stupid this is and how they begin mocking you for your own faith in all of this. How, how can you, you know, I thought you were an intellectual person. I thought you were smart. They just go off. And then you are left what? You're left disillusioned. You're left discouraged. You're feeling jaded. Maybe you're feeling, you're wishing you never even opened your mouth. Why is that? And this, this is where it gets really touchy, and this, here's the irony of this, is we begin to find, when, when people begin to mock us, when people begin to write it off, and, and they begin to look at you and say, you are absolutely ridiculous, and, and you begin to feel discouraged and disillusioned, 
it's in those moments that you begin to realize that, that you are trying to be this person's savior. You are trying to be this person's decision maker, their, their persuader. And because you can't be their savior, now you're feeling discouraged. You're feeling like a fool. You're feeling helpless, powerless. Because it's not within your power. And here's the great irony of this all, is, is we can, uh, in an attempt to do good, in an attempt to like, share the gospel with somebody, we can actually be um, committing idolatry because we believe that, that our, the way we're sharing it or the way we're living our life or whatever is going to be the persuasion, the, the persuasion in this person's life. That we, in some fashion, are going to be this person's savior. And that's exactly what put Christ on the cross. We don't need a Savior. We don't need a Lord. We don't need something supernatural within us to, 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 to save us or to save. And we can do it on our own. Your sin put Christ on the cross. Now, it's not until we realize that the believers here are being mocked, but the believers are not the only ones being mocked, right? Jesus was also mocked as he's being led like a lamb to the slaughter in, in what is the most phenomenal event in human history, the, the, uh, the moment in which Christ died on the cross, transformed the, our, our, our sin and, and took it upon himself and gave us new life. In that moment, the world mocked him. His disciples mocked him through running, through denying him. The soldiers mocked him. They hit, hit him. Tell us who hit you. They mocked him through putting the this, this sign up above his head. And the reality is this, and this is what I've, I, I discover even in my own life, is that when I, um, when I believe that I can operate in my own power, maybe I won't even consciously make that decision, but the reality is, is is I know from my response when I'm mocked, I know from my, re my response when, when my ministry doesn't work, that I've been operating in my own power all along, that I haven't truly been relying on the power of Christ. In those moments, we're mocking Christ. We become the mockers. We become the mockers, and, and ministry is absolutely impossible. Repentance is this. Repentance is... When you, when you recognize your own hypocrisy in all of this, you, you, you begin to recognize how so often you are longing for the Holy Spirit, um, but you're allowing the sins of, of worry or lust or other things to control you. It's when you recognize that you're talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, yet you're living a life completely devoid of His fruit. Joy, patience, long-suffering. Repentance is when we recognize that, that in all of that, we are, we are the mockers here. That we are, we are mocking the Savior, even as we try to do good. And we have no ministry, and our sole consolation is this. As Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say to his mockers? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looks at you and he says, I forgive you.
and you are now invited into this eternal dance, this eternal song. You know, you know why people, the, those who are transformed by the gospel and they're immersed in the spirit <clears throat> and they become what we would call Christians. Their response is always Christianity makes the most sense of the world. I've, I've heard so many Christians say that. Christianity just makes sense. When I look at the world around, it just makes sense. And you know why that is? It's because there is this dance, this song that has been singing for all of eternity. And because of our sin, we can't hear it. We can't dance to it anymore. Yet, at this moment of, of regeneration, when we are baptized in the Spirit, all of a sudden our, our ears are opened, our eyes are opened, and, and we are wrapped up in this beautiful song and dance. I wonder if there is someone here who has been doubting your own ability. You may have uh, been feeling sort of some tugs at your heart lately to do something outside of your comfort zone, some, to minister in some way, maybe at work or in the home or in your neighborhood or somewhere else. And uh, the reality is, is you've been doubting your ability to do so. I'm, I, I don't have enough education. I don't have enough theological education. I don't, I don't know enough. You, you may have heard me tell this story before. There was a, uh, a young, young guy who over a 10-year period had planted thousands of churches in a third world, third world country. And at, at the end of that 10-year period, he was about 26 years old. And so backing that up, when he was 16, he heard uh, a, just, just a bit of a gospel message over the radio, through the static, through a poor, ra uh, poor connection, he heard just a bit of a gospel message. The Spirit used that to prick his heart, to transform his life. He found a couple pages of a Bible. And with that bit of information, went throughout, just everywhere he could go, and plant, started churches. Started a church and moved on. Started another church. Planted thousands of churches. The, we, we've got to get out of this mindset that we have to have all of the right abilities, the right uh, the right background, the right education. And guys, you know me that I'm, I'm a huge fan of education and planning and uh, preparing. If, if there is education that you need, if there's preparing that has to happen, then do it because God has given us our intellect and he's given us our abilities and he's given us our, 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 our resources. So those aren't bad things. Those are things to be used for his glory. But if we can just explain everything we do, if we can explain it all, uh, just, just simply through our own education or, or our own abilities, then, then where is the Holy Spirit? Where is, where is God supernaturally, supernaturally moving through you and changing your own life? And so there might be someone here who has had this tug on their heart and you, you have this idea of doing something, but you are, do not have the abilities. And it's time that you stop relying on your own abilities and start doing what God has called you to do and trusting him. Someone here uh, who at work or at home or uh, within this church or in the neighborhood that you have actually been 
fully operating in your own abilities pretty well. Like you're actually doing a pretty darn good job at life. And uh, if you're really going to be honest with yourself, you enjoy getting the glory for that. If you're really going to be honest for, uh, with yourself, you don't, you don't know if you really want to pass that glory on to God. I mean, it feels good to be able to operate in your skills and your talents and to be praised, doesn't it? But it's time for you to, to repent of your own idolatry, placing yourself at the center of all of this. You're, 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 tired of, you're, you're tired of it. You're tired of trying to convince people. You're tired of, of believing that it's all about you and, and, and you are ready to just fall into the grace of God and say, it is, it is all for your glory. And set yourself aside. Maybe there is someone here who can honestly say that I, I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Maybe I've been baptized in water, but I've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've never been, I've never seen, uh, I've never had the, the very life of God come in and completely transform me. I'm ex I've never exhibited the fruit of the Spirit. I'm, I'm living completely on my own power. And you need to pray, God, I get it, I'm a screwed up sinner. And I'm falling into your grace. Transform me. Allow your spirit to come in and regenerate my heart. Give me a new heart. Make me a new creation. Let's pray together. God, we, we do thank you for this gift of the Holy Spirit, which you poured out on the whole church right here in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and in which you have uh, subsequently immersed each believer. And I ask that uh, the fruit of your Holy Spirit becomes evident in our lives, in our church, that you move through us in, in such a way that we can never explain apart from your, your own power, your own supernatural work, so that men and women will be, will be drawn to the gospel, will be drawn to you, and that you will be glorified in Baltimore and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.
see the Lord And his eyes are blazing like fire I see the Lord And his hair is white like snow And angels cry Holy, holy is the Lord And angels cry Holy, holy is the Lord take time of communion this morning, this reminder of the new covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. And he took the bread and broke it and he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Each time you do this, do this in, in remembrance of me. Can we stand together? God, we are we reminded this morning of Jesus' sacrificial love, which was demonstrated on the cross. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit testifying to the work of Christ and drawing us to Jesus. As we come together around the table, remind us of the oneness that we have in your Spirit as a community, and with you. In Jesus' name, amen. And angels
song we do is uh, called The Power of the Gospel. And um, it's what uh, Big Papa Kurz is talking about. Uh, I mean, there's such an amazing power in the gospel to change us. Um, in Romans chapter 1 somewhere, I think Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for everyone who believes. And you just think about how your lives have been transformed by the gospel. You know, you're here because of the gospel. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. So this song is more of a, a remembrance of the gift that we have in the gospel. It's an awesome, awesome thing. Gospel on the water, 
gospel for everyone and a gospel in every man gospel in the garden gospel in the trees gospel that's inside of you and the gospel inside of me that's the power of the gospel that's the power of the gospel that's the power of the mighty power the power of the gospel in the hour of richness in the hour of need for all of creation comes from the gospel sin now we may live tomorrow and we may live today but we've got to have the gospel when we start out on our way. That's the power of the gospel. Oh, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the mighty power. That's the power of the gospel. And I said, now that's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. I meant to say that earlier. 